Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. This podcast, my guest is a lady called Jenny Davis, and it's hard to know how to introduce her. I mean, are you, how do you, how do you call yourself? Do you call yourself an explorer, an adventurer, a lunatic? How do you uh, probably, <laughs> probably a combination of those three. Um, the proper job, if you like, is uh, as a lawyer uh, for a renewable energy company here in London. And then the fun job is, um, yeah, a polar explorer slash adventurer um, going on exhibitions and a lot of mountaineering. Right, and you can you have no problem combining those two jobs. Do you do you take a phone and a laptop with you at these meetings? <laughs> I really try not to. Um, I have very understandable bosses, um, and actually, how it ends up working is I take unpaid leave, um, and we recruit uh, normally two lawyers to cover me while I'm away, um, and. Actually, what I found key is to get them to come in about a month before I go, so it's a really seamless handover. Um, and as long as people in the business are happy, uh, then I'm allowed to do it again. <laughs> so uh, a lot of work goes into making sure everyone it works for people, because um, it's fine for your kind of board board level to be like really get behind your expeditions and support it. But it, what really matters is the people you work with day to day as well, uh, being happy with how it's all going. So. Um, yeah, unfortunately, let me do it. Um, and they also sponsor some of the expeditions I go on, which is even better. Uh, but it's a balance, and I try not to, to take the mic too much. That's great you have such understanding bosses. Oh, that's a, that allows you to do that. That's really good. Yeah, you ha- I think you have to prove that it can work. Um, I think if you did it once and it was a disaster, you came back and there was sort of lots of complaints about the level of support they got while you were away. Yeah, I don't think you'd be allowed to do it again. Um, but do it do it in the right way, then um, yeah, it can work for a lot of companies. Well, I suppose as well, being in corporate law helps. If you're in criminal law and you were trying to keep people out of jail, it wouldn't work so well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they can have to stay in jail until I get back. <laughs> <laughs> or, or so, sorry, your uh, your crack criminal lawyer who's got a court appearance is actually off up a mountain this weekend so, so you're going to get the stand-in who doesn't really know the case sorry 25 years so so tell us about your your latest expedition that you you did uh, i believe it was over christmas and new year wasn't it yes uh it was away um from november until the end of january as uh, in antarctica and I was trying to break the women's speed record uh, to ski from the South Pole. Uh, sorry, rather, from the coastline of Antarctica to the South Pole. Um, and I was aiming to beat the current women's record of 38 days. Uh, so that's 715 miles. Um, and the attempt uh, has to be solo, so you're entirely by yourself. Unsupported, which means no um, outside help. So absolutely everything I could need for those uh, 38 days or less has to be in a sled behind me. So it's about 75 kilos of gear. 
Right. And unassisted means uh, you can't drive to the pole, you can't cycle to the pole. It's human power, so almost set of skis and, and nothing else. No kites, nothing like that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was about two years of planning um, just to be able to, to, to do this. Um, a lot of training, a lot of weight gain. <laughs> um, and yeah, beforehand as a, an acclimatization trek, it's actually quite um, high altitude uh, down at the South Pole because of the atmospheric pressure. So it's, it feels a lot uh, higher altitude than it actually is. Right. Um, yeah, and studying other expeditions, people got pretty sick with high altitude. So I decided to climb uh, one of the seven summits that's in Antarctica beforehand, um, which I've I mean, I also slept in an altitude tent when I was home in London. I didn't really need to climb that mountain, but I thought I'm only going to Antarctica once, and I really want to climb that mountain. So, did that as an acclimatization uh, trek, and uh, Matt, my other half, came with me, and that was our uh, honeymoon before we get married this summer. Oh, uh, so sort of the the wrong way around, but <laughs> uh, that was really special. We climbed that together, made it to the summit. And how high and is that? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, something like <laughs> five and a half thousand meters, I think. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's pretty pretty high. Pretty um, decent. Yeah. And, di- and, and did you have to do any? What's it like? Do you have to do any? Are you with crampons and ice axes going up there, or is it a yeah, it's, hike? Uh, no, I wouldn't describe it as a hike. You definitely need uh, mountaineering um, skills, uh, crampon roping. Um, belays yeah we were in teams of three or actually the first group to make it to the summit that season um and you could you could still see the old crampon uh marks from last year's climbers right at the top of the summit which was pretty special um but yeah there's a huge amount of equipment you need for that but it was it was a lot of fun and it was about 10 of 10 of us doing it so Um, you came off that mountain and then you started skiing straight away to the south pole yeah, came off that mountain. Um, I'd lost quite a bit of weight, which was a little irritating because I needed that that blubber uh, for the south of the next bit of the, the expedition. Um, so from the the base of um, Mount Vincent, the base camp, uh, we were flown. We're actually stuck there for about five or six days with bad weather, um, so no little jet planes could come in. Uh, so just relaxed, read a book, recovered, and you know, ate as much food as I could. And then from there, we were flown back to the main base camp in Antarctica, which is called uh, Union Glacier. Right. Um, and that's where I guess if anyone is booking uh, a trip in Antarctica, that's where you're flown into. So it's nowhere near any of the scientific bases uh, like British Antarctic Survey. It's really for the for the tourists. So if you're coming to see the penguins, you'd fly in there, um, and then you'd be flown out on another plane uh, to where the penguins are. Likewise, if you came to visit the South Pole. Uh, so there's a bit of a buzz there. It's quite fun. Uh, so flown back there, and then um, it was kind of a, a waiting game. I had to sort a lot of equipment out um, right. and eat some more food. And the food is incredible at Union Glacier. They have um, Michelin star chefs who work there several months of the year. Okay. And it's just it's unbelievable food. Um, and I guess in an environment where you know you could be snowed in for days and not be able to fly home, uh, food becomes even more important, so I think they really focus on that. But uh, the food was something I'll never forget. There, it was incredible. And then, um, yeah, it was just studying the the weather windows to decide the kind of optimum time for me to be flown to the official Guinness um, World Record start line uh, on the coast. Which is where and... I've, done, I've done some research on this. Is it Birkner Island you start at? Uh, I started at Hercules Inlet. 
Hercules Inlet, right? Because yeah. I, before yeah. before doing this podcast, I did this, I did all this research and all the different people who've tried various attempts. Uh, yeah. And there's a whole controversy about where you start from, isn't there? There's some people say you have to start where the water's wet. Some people say that you um, uh, are where you start and finish. And I read that. The same time you were there, actually, a chap called Colin O'Brady, yeah. an American, who appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I listened to his yeah. podcast, and he said, I'm the first guy ever to ski across, unsupported across the thing, across Antarctica. And he never mentioned that, actually, a lot of people don't think he is because he's taken the shortest possible route. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm friends with Colin. Uh, we were, did a mountaineering trip at the same time in uh, okay. Alaska last summer. That's a fascinating summer, yeah. guy, by the way. I mean, don't get me wrong, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not knocking what he did or no, no, achievements, but, but that's what yeah, I read. But the, it's absolutely right. There has been a lot of controversy. Um, and there was, at the same time as Colin, there was a British guy, um, a great polar explorer called Lou Rudd. Yep, a, raw, and yeah, there was, a soldier, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Yeah, and they were going at the same time. And um, I actually missed a lot of the controversy about it because when I actually got back from Antarctica, which was around that time, um, I uh, deleted all social media for a while um, right. to want a bit of a break from it. But um, I have read some of it and I've had lots of friends tell me about it. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So there isn't the controversy is around doing a full crossing of Antarctica. Yes, um, yeah. Rather than, so the route that I was doing is if you, uh, it's hard to kind of visualize without a map, it's just going from the coastline to the middle of Antarctica where the South Pole is. And the controversy is actually around people who are claiming to go fully across the continent. Yes. And what counts as a crossing? Is it coast to coast? And if it is, then you can you can pick a very short route um, because of the shape of Antarctica, the outline. Uh, and so, you know, what, what really is an actual crossing? Because to you and I, a crossing is you know, going uh, across the continent. Um, but, you know, you can take, you can pick a route that makes it much shorter, but I, I guess still qualifies. Um, yeah, some, some Norwegian guy in the in the 90s, with he used a kite, but he did a really long one, didn't he? He did he an did actual, like, yeah, Borga, Borga Usland. And that is serious. Uh, that's a, ser that, I looked at the map of that, and that's like, a lot longer than anyone <laughs> yeah. else has done. Yeah, exactly. And they um, said, oh, it's not fair, you used a kite. I tell you what, if you drop me off there with a kite, I... <laughs> you take it. I wouldn't say that, oh, the, oh, the, oh this is going to be easy now then, I've got a kite. You know, it's not like you have a snowmobile. So, yeah, but I, I think, you know, you just have to be very, um, you have to define what you're doing there uh, very openly and, you know, um, yeah, because you, you obviously using have to, and these guys have to attract sponsorship and they have to attract media interest. So mm. they have to kind of big it up a bit. They have to say, "Look, I'm the first person who's doing this," and and um, <clears throat> because yeah, it's it's. I mean, someone has to pay for this. You need sponsorship. You need to generate interest. So you have to sort of you know try to do something which will stand out. Um, yeah, but I think you also have to be honest because course, if if you if you are you know slight even slightly dishonest, it will be picked up on by the the polar community if you like. And then the problem is it erodes people's trust. So if you've got you know um, another Jenny Davis looking for sponsorship in the future to do this attempt, and she finds that it's harder to get sponsorship because companies are a bit turned off right now because of you know what happened this last season and the negative press around people's claims. So, 
uh, I think people definitely have a responsibility to be really, I mean, it's, it's difficult because the amount of interviews I've done where I've made it really clear that it's solo, unsupported and unassisted. And if you put it into Google, you'll find at least 10 articles um, where the journalist has been told exactly what the expedition is, but they write it up and they call it a crossing. Uh, and it's just like, it's not, it's just a flippant, you know, uh, crossing, whatever. They, they're, not, they're not trying to insinuate that I did a crossing because I don't think they get the difference. But it doesn't matter how much time you spend uh, educating who's interviewing you, it can still be written up completely incorrectly, which is annoying. And, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's you, true for all subjects with journalists. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I think the only people who'd get it right is if you spoke to the, the sort of adventure magazines who really know what they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll yeah. know all the history. They'll know the definitions. Because I, I only learned the definition of unassisted and unsupported the other day when I was doing the research for this podcast. It's um, they're, they're, they're two different meanings. I think one means yeah. that you don't have any human contact doing supply drops and the other means that you're not using any artificial means of uh Trans propulsion. transport um, yeah, yeah yeah so i actually had um i was so i do a lot of i'm a um a polar ambassador to the british government and so that means i go into a lot of schools and talk about uh polar expeditions and um and i was explaining to a group of i think they were like five and seven year olds five to seven year olds about uh, the expedition and what solo, unsupported, and unassisted means. Um, and then kind of talking about the expedition. So every night on the expedition, I have to radio in to a logistics team at base camp. And it's yeah. just to check check of my coordinates. Are you alive? Do you need to speak to a doctor? Are you okay? That kind of thing. Yeah. Same time every night, and you can't miss it. Or um, if, you, if you miss two, they're sending out a plane to get you no matter what. Yeah. And um, at the end of the talk, this girl puts her hand up. She was seven. And she was adorable, and she was like, I just think what you said, it doesn't sound like you were really unassisted or unsupported, un unsupported, sorry, because you got to speak to someone every single night, and that would have helped you. Let <laughs> me laugh. I was like, well, yeah, maybe that's true as well. Like, is it unassisted to have uh, even that support, um, someone checking on you remotely that you speak to in the evenings? Well, this, um, is, what, this is what one of the... Exp uh, um adventure magazines went into they said if we're going to take it to the extreme unsupported means you walk out of your house barefoot and naked in the uk you swim yeah. to the coast of antarctica <laughs> and then you walk barefoot and naked to the south pole and then you walk all the way back and swim because if you do so much as put a pair of sandals on oh we've had help yeah um, exactly yeah. And, which is a bit dumb really so yeah i mean I, you wouldn't you wouldn't be allowed to do it without any um, kind of remote assistance because so the British government uh, give you a permit to be allowed to do solo expeditions in Antarctica. Um, and part of that is you need to be safe. Um, and uh, the powers that be have decided that that means having a radio call every evening. And I think that's <laughs> fair enough. And yeah, I'm sure, it yeah. Does, I'm sure it does give you a moral boost, just knowing that you can be rescued and you're not like, I don't know, Captain Scott, who's just freezing to death. Um, but still, it's the, the, the achievement is defined by what it is, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah, it would be harder if you didn't have a phone call every night and you didn't have the possibility of being rescued and you didn't have a pair of shoes and clothes. But you can only really do the thing as it's defined. And it would be monumentally stupid to go wandering through Antarctica 
with no method of calling for help. You'd just be yeah. suicidal. Or you actually you wouldn't be allowed. No, exactly. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't be allowed. My <laughs> parents wouldn't like it either, so... You can do stuff like that in the sea, though. You can, you can, uh, you can just take to sea in a dinghy if you want, and start yeah, rowing in true. the direction of America. No one cares. Nobody owns the sea, and you know. But I, I think, I think. But even you know, then, you, you know, you'd have an expectation that if things went wrong, you'd get picked up, and the coast guard would have to come and get you. Yeah, well, it's, it's. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you do, you you do hear of people, you know, disappearing out to sea. But, uh, but I also, I guess. The British government has the responsibility for the territory. They don't want people unprepared keeling over on their territory. And then the taxpayer has exactly. to lift them out and, you know. Um, yeah. So a, yeah. On, carry on. No, I was going to say, they put you, there's a lot of hurdles to um, get through before you get that permission to go and do something like this. Um, rightly so, because they, like you say, they can't have people... Uh, who've just been allowed to come and do it, and then something goes wrong, and quite rightly, the press are asking, "Well, they didn't really have any experience, so why did you let them? Why were they even there?" Exactly. Um, yeah. And one of the things I found interesting on Colin O'Brady's uh, talk with Joe Rogan was he did say that there was a lot of climbing. Is that there's um you start at sea yeah. level, obviously, and then you for the first half of the trip, it's this uphill slog. I thought I thought Antarctica was flat. I thought it was um, a meter high from one coast to the other. I was rather rather surprised <laughs> to hear that it's actually he was going uphill. Yeah, so uh, for me it was actually uphill the entire way. Um, so the route from Hercules Inlet, all seven hundred and twenty miles or whatever it is, there it's uphill the whole way. And the first, I think the first eighty miles, uh, you really really feel it. Um, the gradient's at its steepest. And your, your sled is at its heaviest in that first week. Uh, but yeah, it's uphill the whole way. Um, I think you get, I think you gain around 1,500 metres um, across that route. Uh, but with the atmospheric pressure, it feels, you know, even even worse with the altitude. Um, but yeah, you definitely notice it's uphill. Um, and get very excited as you suddenly feel that you're on a, you know, a really flat plateau for a couple hundred yards. Um, things get very exciting, and then you're back uphill again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's probably a little bit easier than downhill because how would you control that sled? And you uh, so the sled, can you? Otherwise, you, that, oh, that's, oh, that's, that, that, that's that's supported now. The sled's carried. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, no, just to to make a brake sled, uh, sled brake rather, you simply um, get a carabiner, um, get a bit of rope, uh, tie some knots into it, and um, just throw it under the sled, and then hook it back up on the other side. Okay. And that creates enough friction to stop it. Yeah, um, I did a lot of training in Norway when it was downhill, um, and I've seen enough people get get whacked by their sled <laughs> as they're coming down to to have done something about it. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and so you're on skis the whole way. You're not in snowshoes. It's it's. Uh, what's it like underfoot? Is it fresh snow? Is it powder? Is it ice? Is it? So uh, usually, I'm told by those um, who kind of mentored me and have done it in. Uh, usual weather years um, because the weather this season uh, was the worst weather they have on record in Antarctica right. um, and so yeah which is great for a continent that normally has I mean their average annual snowfall is 16.6 centimeters um, and the first storm that hit me when I started uh, we got or I got rather uh, 240 estimated centimetres of snow. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, and so, in truth, I didn't know any different. Um, I didn't know whether, I mean, from everything I'd read and those who'd kind of mentored me, it was kind of solid ice with a like light dusting of snow, if you like. But you're not you're not sinking into any snow ever. Okay. There's not enough for that. Um, and so your boots and skis are designed uh, to glide across this ice, if you like. Right. And I started skiing, and um, I'm like, this is. I mean, I'm sinking into the snow, you know, up to calf, mid-calf. God. Um, and the other issue with that <laughs> this year is the sled is also designed to glide over solid uh, pack ice. Uh. And it's sinking. Yeah, so it was incredibly hard. Um, and it just didn't stop snowing. A huge amount of snow. So, yeah, I understand that normally uh, you're gliding over um, this ice, uh, but this last year, um, and I think about halfway through, um, I took my skis off one evening, um, setting up camp, and um, fell over. And I was so confused, like, why have I just fallen over? And I looked around, and I was in snow. It was up to my thighs. Oh, God. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, physically, those days were some of the absolute worst um, because your sled isn't designed to be in that much snow and so you're kind of taking like maybe four or five steps and then having to turn around lift and drag the sled and oh, go again God. yeah so it, and the, you know it's not i guess i didn't know any different um <laughs> but i was like oh this is what i thought it was like uh but it is absolutely not uh i was reassured and i would also get um you know and i spoke to the logistics team in the evening um if there was any if there's any seriously bad weather they will give you a heads up um, they've got a great, uh, there's three guys who work there as meteorologists and they're fantastic. Um, but the, the modelling this year for the weather was just all incorrect. Uh, does, uh, was, does, think, does following in the path of a snowplow count as support? Uh, that's controversial as well because there is, um, I, I know there's a road. That's um, right, there's a road. I didn't realise there's a road down in, well, uh, down yeah, in the south, so, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, well, it's not a road. Uh, I found out that I was told that there's this road, and I was like, "You have to be kidding me!" Like, you know, like because there's some people who, um, are, like, you know, tourists who like to drive back from the South Pole, and these like monster trucks with special wheels, and that's like the, the expedition they're doing. Um, and it is not a road. Um, in the second storm that hit me, that was really ferocious. Um, we got issued, I got I got a message from the logistics team with a weather warning in the middle of the day saying, you know, 70 knot winds are on their way to you, it'll bring like minus 40 degrees, you know, hunker down for the evening. Um, and there are, how it works with that route is the only rule is they give you, I think it's six coordinates. Right. And you must go through them. Sure. And that is to avoid major crevasse fields. Um, yeah, yeah. But, between those GPS coordinates, you can do whatever you like. You can go in circles, you can do whatever you want. And um, there is, I think, two of those GPS coordinates where you, you come really close to um, the what we call the road. Yeah. And that's because uh, I mean, they try and keep skiers and any cars that go through uh, very much apart. And when I talk about cars, I make it sound like there's you know, cars passing all hours of the day. I think there's like five a season. So uh, it's very rare that you get to see one. But on the when that storm was hitting, I was coming in, I was arriving at a coordinate, which is a really big deal when you're skiing 12 hours a day every day because that's the only yeah. sort of, it's like the next stage. You're like, yeah, I made one of the coordinates. Um, and 
I knew from the map that this is where the road should be. And I was like, I was so excited to see this infamous road. I was wondering if it would be, you know, packed down in any way. Um, because normally, like I described before, when it's an ice pack, there's a little bit of snow. Any cars that would have gone over that, would, you can imagine it would create an easier surface to ski on. Yep. Um, because there are, um, you know, it is really bumpy as well as uh, the, the pack ice isn't just smooth. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, and so I thought when I got there, God, it'd be a nice reprieve to ski on that for a while if, it, if there is anything there. And I got there, and I was standing on these, and this is where the road and the kind of skier's route, if you like, meets uh, for, you know, half a mile or something. And it was such a, a total joke. <laughs> it was no different to the path I'd been skiing on. And I now, on the, I now know from the team, the logistics team, that that's because of the wild weather that we had this year. Right. So I think, I think normally if you arrive, you'd be able to make a faint outline of a, you know, slightly more packed ice than what you've been skiing on. Um, and sometimes you can even see uh, the tire tracks still because there's such, I mean, it never snows in Antarctica, so nothing changes really. There's just high winds, so you can sometimes still see it. But, you know, for me, there'd been all that snow and it never stopped snowing, so there was nothing there. Like, I mean, I skied on it for like a day and it made absolutely no difference. Um, and I actually remember crying because... I was so excited about reaching that point, thinking it would be a nice little break, and it was nothing. And I, uh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was awful. It was so awful. So in a real strop, I, uh, I came off it. I mean, there's nothing to come off. Like I could be, yeah. it just didn't make any difference. But I was the same when I read about this road. I was like, this is a, there can't be a road there, and there isn't. Um, it's uh, like a, you're, you're yeah. so unlucky with the weather, and I've. That's, <laughs> that's the problem with these things. It's, uh, it's like when um. I read a lot of books on people who climbed uh, the, the high mountains in the Himalayas, and it's so weather-dependent. I mean, I'm reading stories of people who've been hunkered in a tent for three weeks waiting for a summit push, mm. and the weather will not break for them, you know. And they have, they have to go back. They have to go down the mountain, return to America or Europe, and then come out again another year. It's, 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 um, yeah, it's... it's so hit and miss. I uh, I quite like the irony of it because um, my biggest pet hate is people who um, say, oh, you're so lucky to do these expeditions, or you're so lucky that work gave you time off to go and do these things. Um, and it's like, well, how much of that is luck? <laughs> I put well, exactly. a huge amount of work. Uh, yeah. and you, you know, like something like 150 grand, say, to fundraise for an expedition like this, yeah. they didn't just fall into my lap. No. Um, absolute, absolute luck would be sitting at home and the phone rings and someone's telling you that they're giving you the money for you to go and do an expedition. Like, there's a huge amount of work involved. Cool. Likewise, yeah. having the opportunity to leave work to do it. So that is, I mean, I never react, uh, but it always, you know, if I heard anyone say to me, oh, you're so lucky, I wish I could do what you do. That you makes can, me just kinda, pull you, do it. You, yeah. you definitely can, but you're not going to like the work that's involved. And so I kind of love the irony then of the expeditions that I go to have an element of luck because the weather needs to play ball um, and yeah I've had lots of expeditions where it has and I've had lots where it hasn't I've been stuck on mine like I was stuck in Mount Denali in Alaska for three weeks waiting for a weather window and then yeah. you run out of food so you got to go back down the mountain that, yeah. that's it for another year um, but I quite I mean yeah it 
So, t- so, so tell us yeah. what tell us what happened on your yeah your exactly because I'm sure the reader the, the readers the listeners are thinking well what happened did she make it well, so I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you I'll let you uh, I wish I had made it um, I had three big storms hit me um, and after the first one uh, it's fine you know I'm still good I'm doing the the math all the time of what I need uh, mileage. Um, wise daily to still get the world record um, and so storm one was fine you know it wasn't wasn't too worried I thought and my plan always was when I was sort of within three days of the pole um, I wanted to ski like 72 hours straight yeah as a last push I wanted to really feel what that you know was like um, and uh, so I thought, you know, that's when I'll make up the time. Or I'll do a couple of, like, 24-hour stints, you know, before that, and I'll, I'll make up what I've missed. Fine, crack on, let's go. And then the second storm hit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I have wiped a lot of the second storm from my memory. <laughs> I um, There's a documentary being made about the whole thing, and so I've had to start watching some of the self-filming I did, which I didn't want to look at for a long time. Right. Um, and um, yeah, there's a couple of scenes in that, and that's really brought home just how horrific it was. And I have no idea how I skied for like 12 hours a day in it, but I did, and you, you just do. So what, what, um, was, what was sorry? What was the issue exactly? Was it the you were cold, you were hungry, you were demoted? No, it, the state of it, the snow. Yeah, it was the snow in the second storm. I mean, it was like a blizzard snowing, which is unheard of in Antarctica. Um, and it was it was for twelve hours a day for a week, not seeing any horizon. Um, and right. and it is it makes you. I mean, it's like being travel sick, which I don't. I've never had travel sickness, but like really bad nausea because there's. I guess the human eye naturally wants to focus on something. Yes. And and there is there is nothing there. I couldn't even see my own skis. And if you imagine, to keep me going in the right direction, I have a compass mount, yeah. uh, which is like a chest strap thing, and then uh, the compass sits out in front of me. Um, the idea being that you're not straining your neck too much to look at it. Yeah. Um, but there's still an element of neck strain, and the neck pain was oh. just unreal, because you couldn't take... If you took your eye off that compass for a minute, you, you probably would have done a, a U-turn yeah, without realising. And mm. the only way I can describe it is being inside a marshmallow. Um, right. <laughs> and it's sort of quite yeah. That's what it was like. And your you know your brain is trying to focus on something ahead. You can't because you need to be looking down at your compass. That hurts your neck. You know, twelve hours a day, sometimes oh, fourteen hours a God. day. And um, really, really heavy snow. And a lot of the gear. So when you're when you're in Antarctica, the gear that you're wearing doesn't need to be waterproof. No. Uh, no. You know, but it needs to be windproof. Oh, you're yeah, windproof. Sure, yeah, you're yeah. fine. Yeah. And so um, all the specialist gear made for me was 100% windproof, um, and but it wasn't waterproof. I mean, it's got you know mild waterproof just because of being windproof, um, and so things were getting wet. Oh god! Um, and the boots that you wear, uh, again, they're sort of leather boots uh, with a bit of plastic, um, but the area over the toes is leather. Yep. And normally, like I said, you're gliding along this ice pack. You're not you're not dipping into snow. You're not covered in snow on your feet. Yep. But I was because there's so much snow, and um, it took me two days to kind of figure this out, which seems a bit daft now. But I, I kept getting really cold, big toe, and um, I was like, "Why are my big toes so cold? It doesn't make any sense." Like the rest of my toes are, 
Um, and then I realized that's the, the area of, of leather, fabric, sorry, it was over the big toes. And so every time I'm skiing and dropping into all this snow, it's falling on top and then it's melting in and getting, you know, my oh, toes wet God, and cold. Wet feet in Antarctica. Oh, yeah, and so um, you've got to be really careful with, like, frost nip, which then becomes frostbite. And yeah. so, you know, in the evening, you do, like, a full body check to make sure, because you don't have anyone with you to, to look. So you've got to check everything's all right. And, uh, yeah, I was getting a little bit worried about my toes. And then I suddenly realized what was happening. Uh, so I covered that area of the boot in super glue. Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just to you know, make right, and that worked fine. I never had any problems again. But just those two days, I damaged the nerves in my big toes, and uh, even now, it's getting better all the time. But now, if if it gets cold, my toes suddenly get very, very cold. Um, but then I think the nerves are repaired. But there's still, yeah. So it just shows that this was just two days of skiing and that, and and months of damage. But that that storm was just unbelievable um and so we got through that and finally and the other problem with that is everything runs on solar panels i have two uh quite normal looking size kind of solar panels that you take on a camping trip lightweight ones um, and that powers everything so my satellite phone um my iphone for music ipod shuffles for music uh, my GPS, so as well as having a compass, um, I do have a GPS. I'm probably, probably check that sure. twice a day just to make sure I'm, you know, not on my way to the Arctic. Um, and yeah, the there'd been no sun for five days. Ah, um, right, yeah. And usually you can still power your solar panels when it's cloudy, but not not in that kind, not whilst you're inside a marshmallow. Uh, and it was getting a real problem because uh, you know you'd have to say to the logistics team like. You know, my batteries are going to die, and I've got the backup battery for emergencies, so that's fine. But I started having to use that, um, and I had to get them to agree that if they didn't hear from me for for two nights of the logistics dialing calls, that they wouldn't send out the plane to get me. Right. Um, which they're really reluctant to do because it's like, you know, don't you dare come and pick me up just because you haven't heard from me when you know it's because there's no sun. But it was yeah. fine. Like I think the weather broke on like day seven, um, and I was quickly able to charge everything up. But yeah, and I think I had after that a day or two of lovely blue skies, which was just heavenly. Uh-huh. Um, and it's obviously 24 hours sunlight there. And so when the sun's out, it's actually quite warm. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, because you're moving and ah, beautiful few days. And you know, think, oh, what was all the fuss about in that storm? Like, if life is suddenly worth living again, this is brilliant. Um, and then the third storm hit, and that was uh, the winds. Um, I think it went up, I was told it went up to 70 knots. Um, and when you're doing a sort of expedition like this, uh, I've always got a set of rules, and I actually wrote most of them inside the tent. Right. And that's that's because uh, if you were doing this with a friend or an expedition buddy, um, you have this kind of protocol, the rules about you know how we behave in certain scenarios, like if the weather gets really bad, we stop and put our tent up. Or if one of us, you know, you've got someone to check if you're showing signs of hypothermia because it's almost impossible to spot it in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until it's too late. So how do you um, cater for that when you're solo? So to me, it's writing them on the tent in front of me. And one of the rules, uh, if the if when you're on it, when you're in a polar environment, if the wind picks up. Um, and you feel it. Suddenly you're like, whoa, what's going on here? There's some, like something's changing, the weather's coming in. Um, and if incrementally over a few hours it really starts to pick up, then you can rest assured there's a big storm coming in and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay. 
Um, and so in in that environment, you should, uh, before the winds get too high, you should stop and set up camp. And you're probably going to have to build a snow wall around one side of the tent, uh, the direction the wind's coming in to give you extra protection. And do you know, if there was two of you or three of you, you could probably keep skiing for a bit longer in that wind. Yeah. Um, because you've got more pairs of hands to put the tent up uh, in high winds. But when you're solo, it's, it's completely different. And to be safe, you should stop and set up camp. And I think by like by noon, I was like, oh, okay, what's going on here? The weather's getting pretty bad. And it's like, oh, I don't want to stop yet. I've only just started skiing, really, because I'd start skiing from like eight in the morning, um, stop at you know not before eight at night. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, rather than listening to my own internal set of rules, I carried on skiing. And then around four in the afternoon, I think it was, the weather was at its worst uh and it's like this is interesting because i actually don't think that now i can set up camp tonight right um i'm gonna have to ski through the night because um yeah and i'd had i actually had nightmares and lead up to antarctica the one thing i did not want to happen was the tent flying away from me when i was trying to set it up because that would just be so embarrassing uh, oh, yeah, to say yeah. that you lost the tent and I went. So it was always carabiner to my sled, you know, worst case scenario. And there's a very specific way of putting a tent up in that environment um, and how you pack the tent down so that it's yep. really, really simple. Um, but still, uh, if the wind gets under it, then forget it. That tent is gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I skied, I think, till about 11 o'clock at night uh, when it died down. Um, and then I was able to put the tent up. But, you know, it's pretty stupid because you are running low on water because you've melted enough ice that morning or that e- the evening before to just last you for your day skiing, not to last you for another, you know, five hours, six hours of extra yep. skiing. Um, but I knew that, and you think, that oh, it's only dehydration for six hours or whatever. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, even if you have your, your own rules, which I was so strict about before I left, actually in the field when it comes to, well, I've still got a world record to break here. It goes out the window. Um, But yeah, after, I guess the second storm was when it was quite clear. It was a difficult conversation to have with my dad. He was like the remote expedition manager that I was probably not going to get the speed record. Uh, I'd lost, yeah, I'd lost too much, too much time. Um, I was doing, I think every day it was roughly twice the effort to cover half the distance that I needed. And like, there's so much snow, it just never stopped. Um, and so I had to kind of readjust um, what the goal there was. And I'd always said, always said when I was in the UK before leaving that I would not be happy with just making the South Pole. You want to break um, the record. Uh, re- sorry, remind yeah. us again what the record was. It's the fastest uh, woman to solo. Yeah, far fastest woman, solo, unsupported and unassisted. And how long that um, record stood for? Uh, so it stood for 10 years up until two years ago where it was broken by 10 hours. Right. Um, so Hannah McCann, a British polar explorer, held it for a long time. Uh, she was one of my mentors. And then um, a Swedish woman broke it two years ago, Johanna Davidson. Okay. Uh, who I'm also really good friends with. And um, she, yeah, she took 10 hours off. And so that's, th- uh, I think the record is 38 days and change. Right. Um, so yeah, I was not going to get that. And that was a really difficult few days while I, I kind of processed it whilst there, while skiing. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, are you actually, and actually because the conditions were so tough, 
I think I became comfortable with, you know, just reaching the five pole was a massive achievement. Yeah, yeah. Whereas before, I did not agree that it was uh, or could be. Um, so that was really tough. I didn't enjoy that. Um, it was difficult. And then I think that was just before. And then the third storm hit, and that's when it was quite clear that I wasn't, I probably wasn't even going to make the South Pole. And okay. that's because the South Pole shuts on the 16th of January every single year. It's not a permanent base for people to arrive at there. Uh, okay. The scientific scientific side is, but that's owned by the Americans, and we're not we're not allowed over there. Right. Um, it's a very small area, but it, you're not allowed over there. And the the camp that they set up temporarily there, which is run by the logistics company. So, um, if you're going to visit the penguins, going to visit the South Pole, you're always booked through this company called um, ALE, Antarctica Logistics and Expeditions. Right. Uh, and everything closes down because that's when Antarctica winter returns. So the season's very short. I think it runs from the 1st of November to the 16th of January. Um, and because of the extreme weather this year, they told us uh, they were extending the season by a week um, okay. to give to give people a bit <laughs> a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I had made the decision to start uh, later in the season. So uh, I didn't start on the 1st of November, I didn't even fly out to the 20th, and then I climbed that mountain. So I think I started 6th or 7th of December, around then. Um, and that was based on studying about 20 other expeditions, not just solo ones, but people do it as like a, a holiday. You can get a guide, you know, five of you, and you can see that route with a guide. So right. I studied all these expeditions, and actually, um, yeah, like Antarctica summer officially kicks off on the 1st of November when the season opens. But the weather is still pretty volatile because it's still a bit wintry. Yeah. Um, and anyone who set a speed record there has started much later in the season because it's you know you're into their real summer period and the weather's a lot more settled. Um, and the idea being you can you know ski longer in better conditions and, and get your your speed record. And so that was uh, that was my plan and okay. discussed it at length with the logistics team and they thought it was a fantastic idea and combined with acclimatizing on the mountain beforehand was it was just you know the preparation the thought behind it was really um good but uh, i didn't account for the worst weather and um, they've ever had <laughs> so right. uh yeah and um the sixth to arrive on the 16th of january was becoming uh increasingly unlikely um, but even when they extended it, they I think they added on another five days. It didn't, it didn't make any difference. I'd lost so much time. Yeah. And um, I also have, of course, a limited number of days of food. I packed, I think, yep. 40 days of food. Um, and so, you know, you're not, you're going to run out of food. Like, I would have happily, and they can, so there's, there's a halfway uh, mark point on the route uh, called Thiel's Corner. Right. Um, where there is a small bit of runway. Uh, and that's because the logistics team used that as somewhere to land to cache fuel. So they yeah, cache yeah. fuel, emergency fuel, all over the continent just in case. And so if you, um, they can, they can, they do have food buried there. And so if you are, it looks like uh, you're running out of food, you need more time, you can say, uh, hands up, where is that food buried? Um, right. And, uh, or they might drop some off if there's a flight the week before you're due to ski through it. Um, and you're allowed to then take that food. You'd no longer be unsupported, of course. No. That's that's registered and recorded. That's fine. Um, but uh, I would have I would have done that. 
I would have called it quits on the unsupported element of the expedition. I'd have taken the food because at that right. point it was like even just reaching the South Pole would be incredible. Yep. And then I can probably live with it. I can probably live with the fact that I didn't get the record because I made the South Pole. Yeah. Uh, and even that wasn't going to be possible. I wasn't going to make Fields Corner in time. I was going to run out of food before then. Um, and so uh, <laughs> to readjust the goal all over again, and the goal then was just skiing <laughs> 12 hours a day until I run out of food. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, discussed it a lot. motivational. It was really, really hard. And yeah. because the alternative was to just say, okay, guys, I'm done. You can come and pick me up. But I felt like I'd only just started. I think I was on the ice for like 25 days in the end by myself. Yeah. Um, and I was like, no, even if all I'm doing is skiing another couple hundred miles ahead of me, I still don't. I'm not ready to go yet. Fair enough, um, yeah. And I honestly believed, and it wasn't easy at all, but I really believed there was still something that would come out of just skiing in a straight line towards the South Pole for another two weeks. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was miserable for a few days. I had to I had to really try and deal with that. Like, you're not actually going anywhere. Like, you, there is no goal. You're not going anywhere. But it was like, no, something something good will happen. I, and I don't, I don't want to go home yet. I think I would have felt worse if I just said... Well, and I, I just I disagree from pulling out of things because you're not going to get the speed record or you're not going to get the record. Um, but I get that it might seem a bit daft. Yeah, but you weren't going anywhere anymore. You weren't. You, it was obvious I was not going to make the South Pole. No, but I mean, I, I, no, I can I can understand the as somebody who isn't a polar explorer, I can understand why you were. I mean, you'd come all that way if you were just round the corner from home. Then it's different. Yeah. You're a long way from home. You've planned a lot. You may as well. Oh, you might have worked. There. Yeah, yeah. But also, you gain, I mean, I had to gain 12 kilos. And so, <laughs> I need to get rid of this. I got to ski. And I think I only have. I can't, I, can't, I can't go home 11 kilo fatty overweight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that might be the wedding off to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, did, I didn't want to leave. And it, I thought, I was actually worried the logistics team might say, well, that's a bit daft, but no, they were like, it's absolutely fine, like your expedition, you carry on skiing, do what you like, it's fine. Yep. Um, and so that was fine. Uh, and it was hard to then find the motivation to like, you know, ski an extra hour in the evening because you kind of think, well, why? Yeah. Uh, so I guess I was just skiing the normal 12 hours a day again. Um, and the weather got a bit nicer, it's still quite windy. Uh, but yeah, it's just such a beautiful place. Ah, and then um, then I started getting sick. Um, oh so I'd had pretty bad diarrhea, right. um, and I guess I'd had that for a little while, but nothing that I was worried about um, yeah. because you're on expedition, you're pushing your body to the extremes. Like you yeah, know, yeah. it's not going to be happy all the time. Um, but it was stomach cramps started getting pretty bad. Um, I was I had a couple of nights of a really high fever overnight. Um, like waking up like drenched in sweat. Okay. I was like, okay, this is a little bit different. Um, and if I'm honest, I wondered if I tell the logistics team because um, uh, I didn't want, well, the truth, I didn't want to be pulled, I didn't want to be medevaced. I didn't want them to be like, okay, what, this doesn't sound good. Um, but I told them. Uh, I probably downplayed it a little bit. 
um, and my other half is a doctor. So I told him and I told my dad. Um, and they were like, oh, it's all right, you know, keep out for this, watch out for this, is there any kind of blood in the feces, all that kind of stuff. And it was yeah, like, yeah. no, yeah, I, th- I think I'm okay. And then um, uh, every evening they'd made sure um, the doctor from base camp was available for me to speak to. And they just kept an eye. Um, and I was doing research for the University of Coventry, so I actually had a little pulsometer and oximeter with me. So I could okay. record, you know, what my heart rate was and if oxygen levels were dropping. Um, and yeah, it got worse. And the hesitancy to be like to really tell the medical team how bad it was, which didn't last very long, uh, because you know I eventually knew I was really unwell. But before then, the hesitancy was there'd been um, a brilliant British polar explorer who Henry passed Wilson. away. Yeah, Henry Wesley. Yeah, I, I've done my um, research, you see. Yeah, you yeah, have. <laughs> and he um, unfortunately passed away, I think it was three years ago now. So Yeah, sorry, three seasons ago. So two seasons before I was there. And um, he'd had uh, very similar complaints, um, stomach pain. Right. Um, and it was um, a bowel infection um, that became peritonitis. And then eventually he became septic. And he was so close to his end goal um, that maybe, uh, you know, he, he downplayed how bad it was too. Like, I, I don't know that for sure. But, um, and he, so, he, di- he died when he was in a hospital, didn't he? He didn't die on yeah, the ice. He got flown no, back. And... He was picked up and then it was too late because he'd become so septic. Um, and it's a kind of, you know, a bowel infection. If you got it here in the UK, you'd go and see your doctor the next day, you get some antibiotics, and that'd be the end of it. But in that environment and you do have a pretty hefty medical kit but you can't account for everything um, and so I tried you know the doctors have a list of what I have with me so we'd go through like, well try taking this try taking that um, and uh, I didn't really do anything and then yeah the hesitancy of me being totally honest with them was I was really worried I didn't think it was that bad in truth then yeah. but I was worried that they would err on the side of caution because they'd, they'd all it was the same doctors that treated Henry and were with him and oh right it was still very, very raw for them and painful for them, understandably. And I thought, gosh, they might decide to pull me, um, just because they never, no one ever wants to go through what happened before, yeah. which I completely understand, and they should do that. Um, and also, they're very well trained and understand the mentality of someone who's on a solo expedition of sure. this nature. Like you, pretty much do anything to complete it. And so, are you always going to be honest about the condition you're in? No. Yeah. Um, and actually, since I've got back, I found it really a little bit worrying in thinking about it all because I've kind of thought, gosh, if I'd been three days from the end, like Henry, would I have spoken up about my stomach pain? And, and what was it you had? Was it the same thing? Was it a stomach infection? Yeah, it was. I had a bowel infection um, and they suspected appendicitis. Um, uh, but it was a bowel infection um, now, with you, mild, you, mild is, peritonitis. Is that is that related to the fact you were in Antarctica pulling a sled along? Is it is it is there a connection? Yeah, so they they're trying to figure that out. Um, with me, they want to know as part of research, and also in case I do something like this again. Um, and funnily enough, I have a colonoscopy tomorrow morning. What a lovely. Um, <laughs> yeah, a great way to spend these weekends. <laughs> um, and uh, to try and find out, um, I've had some abdominal pain, quite bad abdominal pain since I got back. 
Um, but yeah, they're interested to find out what what they their working theory at the moment is when you push yourself. It's nothing to do with Antarctica as such, but when you're yeah. pushing your body to extremes, there can be like translocation of microbes there. Right. And so you, that's how you get the bowel infection. But they're still they haven't published anything yet. They're still trying to get to the <laughs> the bottom of that. Um, and yeah. Uh, so, so you called the medical team, and you and you did 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 they tell you? Did did you basically call it quits then? Did it get to a point where the pain was so bad you just went, look, you got to get uh, out of here? Yeah, I'm a little, no, not a little. I am embarrassed now as to how I acted uh, in that moment. I um, they told me I had to be medevaced, um, and I refused. Um, I agreed to take a day's rest. Right. Um, and what I'm forever grateful to them for is they never made me feel like you're being an idiot in refusing the medivac. You're not even going anywhere. And, you know, they never made me feel like that. Um, and I guess they've, you know, done, been here before. And they said, fine, take a rest day, but um, we want to speak to you like every few hours just to check in to make sure you're still with us. Yeah. Um, but I, I categorically told them, in, you know, so I suddenly became a lawyer again. That uh, I did not need to be medevaced. Um, it was a complete waste of their time and money because there's financial implications to sending a plane out uh, to come and get me. And okay, I have insurance for that. Um, but you know, I was like, no, do not come pick me up. Um, and I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They they checked in with my family to make sure. You know, has, have you heard from Jenny? And she's told you she's unwell. My dad and Matt were like, yep, we've heard from her, and she's she's told us. Um, but they were worried, and um, you know, I don't, sure. I don't blame them. <clears throat> and so I think I slept on it for the night, and I thought, oh, if I have a rest day, I'll feel better in the morning, and they'll, they'll leave me in peace, and they'll let me carry on with my skiing. <laughs> uh, and I woke up worse. Right, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and after that, I mean, they, they said, um, we, as a compromise, we will fly out to you yep. with a doctor. They'll examine you in the field. Yep. And. And they decide that you are actually okay. You don't need to go uh, back to hospital. Then we'll let you carry on. Um, and the skeptic in me didn't believe that. I thought they're going to make me get on that plane and go back. Right. Um, and uh, also, who's paying for that flight? So the most expensive thing in Antarctica is fuel because they have to fly out all the fuel they need for the season every year. Sure. Uh, which is very heavy and expensive. And so the flight to come and get me was uh i think an hour each way base camp and back something like that and it was 35 grand well yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and so my question again to legal head on who's gonna pay for that if so i where, where, where do they land is it, can they land anywhere on the ice i imagine they just have to circle around and find a flat spot and hope there's no crevice well the ice. yeah like some of the world's most experienced pilots work in antarctica and yeah. they absolutely love their job they're just oh, the best do. guys yeah, and so um, it's a little Cessna jet. I think they're like six to eight seaters, and they've got they've got kind of big skis on the bottom of them. But they um, you have to give them weather observations. Uh, so by um, InReach, which is like a sort of a texting system that works yep. there, you have to give them um, weather observations on the hour, every hour, to try and help them. So like you know, where's the cloud sitting? Um, is it a whiteout? They can't land in a whiteout normally unless it's a real emergency. No, and high winds so, as well, I guess. If it, so if you get sick really yeah. high winds, you're kind of in trouble. 
Absolutely, yeah. That actually happened when we were at Vincent Base Camp. If you remember, I said we were stuck there for a week, Matt and I, yeah. with bad weather. Um, one of the guides who worked there is uh, like life-threateningly allergic to shellfish. Right. And so there's a ban at the base camps there on having anything with shellfish in it. Like even just walking past it that's being cooked is enough to put her into um, anaphylactic oh, shock. And uh, there was some shrimp paste and a curry powder or something. Oh, um, yeah. And Matt was there, and then another guy on our team was a Canadian paramedic, and they just saved her life. And the, the no plane could come and get her. Uh, so they stabilised her in one of the tents. And the med kit they had there was pretty impressive, Matt says. But, yeah, you're right. If, if they can't land, they can't land. So, um, But the, the weather was quite nice. Um, and, yeah, so they, they agreed. Uh, the owners of the company, who are... I always think studying this company would be so interesting. Like, I've never worked with a company as moral as ALE. Even more moral than a major oil company? because i i mean i don't know this at all but from studying them i would have thought you know their their profit margins every year it's just so linked to the weather because you know you have like all these chinese tourists come out to come see the penguins but then they can be stuck at union glacier for a week in bad weather you've got to feed them and it's it's really expensive everything has to be flown in and and they they always it just doesn't feel like it's run uh, with an attitude of caring too much about that. I mean, obviously, it has to make money. It's still a business. But for me, in that in that example, they were willing to spend. So they said, sorry, that they would fund the cost of the flight to come and get me. Right. Uh, and if I was fine, uh, they would pay for it. Uh, but if I was sick, as sick as they thought I was, then obviously my insurance would cover it. Yeah. Um, and um, well, I suspect yeah. it wasn't a risk for them at all. I expect they knew that you were state urine and just told you that, knowing full well you were going to pick it up. They probably thought there's only one person on the planet here who thinks that she doesn't need to come back. Right? Get uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they they landed, uh, which is really surreal. Uh, you've been alone forever. Just, sorry, they, they don't want, the last thing they'd need is reputational damage, that they were reluctant to send a plane out because they might have to pay for it and someone dies. That would kill them. That would kill them stone dead. Uh, absolutely, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they have to, I mean, it's all reputation, isn't it? And the feeling that you're going to be taken care of. And if, if there's a, a pattern of, well, we think you're all right, <laughs> we're not coming out. And then, you know, there's corpses stacking up on the ice. They're, they're not going to be in business. So I guess that's driving a lot of it. And I suspect they knew you were a lot worse than you were letting on. In fact, they've probably seen that with so many other people that they, they, always, they always underplay the symptoms. So they probably realize, right, if they're saying this, it really means that. It really means it's absolutely terrible and they're in agony. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, they come to uh, collect me and... Um, and I jump on the plane and they cleared all the seats and the stretches and everything and just a really full uh, medical review. Um, and yeah, uh, my stomach was quite kind of bloated out um, and I like failed every test the doctor did when he was feeling my stomach. <laughs> and um, he was so lovely. Uh, and um, it's like, yeah, this is, Jen, you know, you can't go any further. I had a fever and I mean, I, yeah, I was sick, fine. It must have been relieved um, in some way, though. I mean, some of you would have been disappointed, but it must have been quite nice to think, you know, through no um, fault of your own, I'm now on a plane going back. God, I would be. Um, 
No, it wasn't no. like that. No, no, that's not how I felt. Uh, that's why you're an explorer I'd... and I'm not. Uh, what was quite nice is um, about 80 miles in front of me, I knew uh, Richard Parks was 80 miles in front of me, roughly. And, you know, I mentioned this messaging system we can use out there. Yep. Um, him and I chatted over that sometimes in the evening. We'd be like, how was your day? Uh, bloody awful. So much snow. We basically just moaned about he? the snow he, together. He was, he was doing a he's a, Yeah, he's a, a British polar explorer, and he was going for the men's speed record, which is an incredibly fast 24 days. Right. Um, and um, he... Yeah, he, it was his, his second attempt uh, at the speed record, um, and he's come really close um, a couple of years before, and sort of you know honed everything down. It was like, right, this is it. This is the year, and I had the same issues I had with the weather. And I think about a week before um, I was medevaced, he had pulled the plug. Um, right. Same issues. Like he packed. I can't remember. He, he would have packed. I'm guessing like 25 days worth of food. Yeah, um, yeah. wanted to be 24 and so you're not the math you're not going to get there um, in time with the food you have yeah um, unless you accept a resupply and then it's no longer unsupported uh, which I don't think you wanted to do yeah and so um how it works uh, if you are paying you pay ALE to obviously be there as a solo expedition and that cost entitles you to a pickup um, but not your own uh, personal flight for them to pick you up so what they'll do is if there's a group traveling back from the South Pole or, uh, yeah, it's always the South Pole, a flight coming back from the South Pole um, with other people on it, uh, they yeah. will schedule and they will you know, land beside you and pick you up. So you could be waiting for like a week. Okay. Um, obviously, if you're going to run out of food, then uh, they'll do something, um, but they tend to manage it. So they you have to tell them how many days food you have. So, for example, with Richard, they didn't know okay, the weather's bad, you've got X number of days food left. And they do it all behind the scenes, you don't know anything about it, and so they'll know, like, well, we've got a flight coming that week, that week, okay. Right. Um, and so they told him there was a flight, but it was going to be about five days away. And so he was just kind of, he just stayed where he was. He was camping, resting, sleeping. Um, he'd officially stopped his world record attempt. Right. Um, and I remember that being a bit of a blow to me at the time, because I knew, this was before I got sick, obviously, um, and I knew I wasn't going to get to the South Pole, but I still wanted to carry on. And so um, Richard was, I was a really good friend with Richard. And so to get a message from him saying, I've stopped, I was like, what? what do you mean you stopped? Like, no, let's keep going. And you can't yeah, say that yeah. to someone because they're in their own headspace in their expedition. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I knew um, Freddie uh, has a wife and a, uh, not Freddie, Richard has a wife and a 10-month-old son, son called Freddie. And I knew um, he was desperate. Now that it was over, his expedition, he was desperate to get home as soon as possible. Um, he's just missed Christmas. And you know, and so um, when they said to me, we are medivacking me, or we're coming to get you, um, and the doctor will examine you in the field, and if you're okay, you can carry on. My first thing I said to him is, well, while you're here, <laughs> would you mind, could you pick up Richard? Right. Because he's like an extra ten minutes of flying maximum away from me, and he's desperate to get home to Freddie. And they just laughed, and they're like, "Let us deal with logistics, Jen." 
Stop, stop trying to Uber pool down in, <laughs> down in the Antarctic. <laughs> oh, funny. Anyway, um, and then uh, I messaged Richard and, and he said, they just got in touch with me and they're going to pick me up at the same time. Like, thank you so much. So he's on the moon. So when they picked me up and I had to, um, you know, I was upset, of course. And then we yeah. got back up in the air for 10 minutes, landed beside Richard. And I'll never forget. I hadn't seen him for like a month because... Um, We'd started uh, at slightly different times, and he had this massive beard. Yeah, yeah. And at the smile on his face, like he was over the moon to be picked up, and I was crying. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just kind of hugged, and then, um, um, yeah, we it was like a actually I think it was a two-hour flight to get back to Union Glacier. Yeah. Um, a lot of emotions. Uh, because I, I just it was actually quite nice in a way to be with Richard. Um, because he'd been a mentor to me for a while anyway. and okay. um, But landing at base camp, you know, all the kitchen staff had come out to meet us because so the staff at Union Glacier, when they have their daily staff meeting, um, they always get an update on the solo expeditions, people going for the records, and they love hearing about it. Like, oh, Jenny sure, did 20 yeah, miles yeah, today. Yeah, did that. Yeah. And everyone was rooting. Like, they were so, such an amazing group of people. Like, there's a joke at Union Glacier that to work there, you need at least three PhDs. Right. Um, everyone, like, from doing the washing up to working in, you know, the comms, they, they're all, um, like, the stories they have. The, I mean, ah, oh, I'm desperate for, like, the BBC to do some kind of series on the company and the people who work there. It'd be so fascinating. But it's obviously anyway, appalling for them, isn't it? It's, people people yeah. will sign up to do that because they have an interest and it'll be certain characters. They're not just people recruited off the street. You'd have to have a massive oh, interest no. in... Oh, no. Your CV needs to be something it. else. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so they all came out to kind of welcome us uh, on... You can't call it a runway. It's just uh, a bit of ice. Um, and so that was really emotional and they'd all been like and it's things like you know I was doing a daily blog from the ice and it was so weird to chat to people who'd read it and you're like oh, why right. are you reading my blog <laughs> like, of course. I, le I um, left a message for you I think I did write one maybe. comment on there I, I, wrote, I, I wrote one comment in fact I, I did follow it I I didn't follow from the beginning but when your dad told me yeah I'm um he said yeah when your dad told me that you were you know, you'd started you on your way. I, I started visiting your website and I was reading your blog. In fact, I'm impressed how much you were able to write in that tent every evening. No, so like I, a pain in the ass. Uh, truly, it was my least favorite job in the evening, but I Fair. did not. I did not write a blog in full. So what I did was I would um, write bullet points. Yep. Like 22 miles done today, weather crap, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a few kind of like you know what had happened that day and then the PR team in London uh, would turn it into something people would actually want oh, to read so okay. so right. like proper sentences um, and I said there was loads of typos like oh you know the amount of times I would be typing that blog up and I'd have fallen asleep and I'd wake up like three in the morning and be like oh I've still got this phone in my hand typing up this blog <laughs> uh, so yeah there's no way I'd have had the time to write uh, full Full blogs. Um, so, your, so, no, so, your, so your blogging wasn't unsupported. My blogging was not unsupported. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, right, okay. Um, and yeah, the other thing people ask is, how did you take all those amazing photos that went with the blogs? Um, I didn't. Um, oh, right. Before, yeah, before. So I told you, about, I climbed the mountain, and then had a, like I think about four or five days at base camp before I was flown to the Guinness start line on the coast. 
um, and I had a photographer with me then um, and we went out on a scooby away from camp um, and did lots of filming and photos um, oh, okay. so that we'd ha yeah because uh, so they had photos for the sponsors uh, for the documentary as well and then also to use with the blogs and online during the expedition um, I did I did self-film and yep. take some photos um, but when you're trying to go for a speed record the last thing you want to be doing uh, even taking 10 minutes seems like a serious annoyance sure. to kind of set, set up your GoPro in the distance oh, and have yeah, to ski yeah. a kind of big loop round so there's no marks in the snow you're skiing through and then come back and then ski through it um, but I did a couple things like um, that'll be in the documentary so things like setting up the tent filming that um, some of the bad weather uh, in the in the the second storm that hit I couldn't I couldn't film it. The, no, no, no. Well, it's nothing to see, I uh, guess. Just white. There's, yeah, there's nothing to see, but also, um, so what I hated most, and I, and all the training up for Antarctica, this was true in any cold environment. I hate stopping unless yeah, it's yeah, like the yeah. end of the day because you've worked hard for this body heat, and when yeah, you're moving, yeah, yeah. you should never be cold. But you also should never be sweating. That's incredibly dangerous. That's right. Yeah, um, Colin O'Brady said that. Yeah, you can't sweat because then you just freeze to death. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. It's a real fine balance to get it right. Um, but once you know, it's always the same with anything. Once you know, you know. Um, yeah. And so, but stopping um, for a quick pee, for something to eat, I just couldn't stand it because you lose all that body heat. And then when you start up again, you're cold yeah. and it's painful. And yeah. I've got like rainos in my hands. And so like the blood coming back to your, to your hands and feet uh, is so painful. Yeah. Um, I just would do anything to not stop. Um, so, yeah, hated stopping. <laughs> When's this documentary out? Uh, that's a very good question. So because I um, failed at the uh, arriving at the South Pole or um, getting the new speed record, um, I, um, I don't think it would be a very interesting documentary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and some people disagree with that. They're like, well, there's a huge amount to be learned in failing, uh, which I agree with. Um, but if I'm honest, in the lead up to Antarctica, I'd had a good year of failing. I had a terrible race season. Um, I became really unwell with a thyroid disease. And I just thought, yeah, I've had, yeah I get I get that we all learn from failing. Uh, I've failed 20, thank you very much. And now I'd like to succeed in getting to the South Pole. Just, just, let, just let the listeners know that you do what, because you did, you did, um, you did some ultra marathon through the desert or something. You run marathons, don't you? And you do try. Yeah, so my. Stuff, so. Yeah, the, my kind of background in sport is did a lot of swimming as a teenager and then um, did a little bit of triathlon and then kind of discovered uh, accidentally that I was pretty good at running long distances um, and started doing more and more of like, their multi-day races. So the kind of famous one is the Marathon de Saab in Morocco, which is an amazing race. Um, and I was still working full-time as a lawyer doing all of that and started winning quite a few races right um, and my that's when I worked for a big oil and gas company VTOL and I remember my boss saying it's pretty obvious you're going to leave and go pro and I was like no no no, no I'm not doing that like, I'm going to stay working for anyway I, uh, I won a big race in Iran okay um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done um, it was running in it's like a five day race self supported so you have to carry all your food and sleeping bag and everything um, and temperatures got to 66 degrees celsius 
uh, which, oh, it's just, I will never, ever forget what it was like to run in that versus, like, the minus 40 of Antarctica. And you won it. Um, I did, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I came back from that, and then some sponsors got in touch, um, and they asked if I would sign uh, sponsorship contracts and go pro full-time, uh, which I was like, absolutely, why not? Um, and that kind of uh, was around the same time that Matt found out he's a he's a surgeon in the British Army, and he can be posted to Texas for two years. Uh, so the timing was ideal, because I can obviously train and run from anywhere, and so we moved out to Texas for two years. Um, where I was pro, and the whole time I was planning this Antarctica expedition in the background, um, and I always knew that I would go back to being a lawyer because I love it, yeah. um, and um, we, you know, I want a proper job as well. Yeah, one. you can't, you can't. Uh, I imagine tramping throughout Antarctica and running around Iran has a limited lifespan. You can't be doing <laughs> yeah, exactly. That when you're Fifty, can you? Yeah, exactly. And you also like I got injured a lot in those two years, yeah. which is. Um, that's the hardest thing I find about going pro was having placed upon me limitations of the number of races I was allowed to do, number one. Yeah. Because all these races I'd done, I'd always picked on like, oh, it's in Iran. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Or, you know, um, oh, it's in, through the Gobi Desert in China. That sounds fun. Like, it's a way of seeing new places, new places and, yeah. and meeting new people. Uh, so suddenly it was like, no, you can't do as many as you want because I'd gone from, you know, winning the odd one or being on the podium and they, the sponsors want you to do less, but make sure you win them. Oh, right. Um, and so I didn't find that that fun. Um, but also what I found really difficult was that, because you now do it full-time, um, I guess before with a full-time job, you could not overtrain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because you had a full-time job. And so suddenly it was like, oh, your full-time job is running and cycling and swimming to kind of mix it up. But it was it was impossible to not overtrain. Like, I, I felt like if I had a, you know, oh, today's meant to be a rest day, it just felt like you were being lazy. So I find it I find it really hard to actually change my mentality to view running as a job. Because <laughs> um, yeah. what did you do today? Oh, well, I had a rest afternoon, so I read a book and just relaxed lying down. There's do your really, sponsors really ring you up every... Do, do you have, a, like, a, a GPS monitor on you and if you've been <laughs> sedentary for more than five hours... Your, your, your sponsor rings up and says, "Oh, lazy ass!" Oh, get me right now. So the, I had uh, a few coaches. I had three coaches, um, and all your um, training is on this online plan called Training Peaks. Right. Um, and there was a couple of times, like uh, where I so automatically, you know, you do your training, you have your Garmin on, I love the data, recording on the data, and they analyze it, and um, it's automatically syncs. So as soon as I get back on Wi-Fi from the training, uh, it goes onto this online platform. And they can see it immediately. Right. And on like <laughs> more than once where I was meant to be resting, I was like, oh, I'll just go out for a quick run. Or I'll go out for a quick bike ride. And thinking, oh, they'll never know. <laughs> you get a text message being like, what, what the doing? hell? Do you know? And you're like, oh, crap, I forgot to de-link Garmin uh, <laughs> from the Wi-Fi. So I got busted on more than one occasion. But no, I, I find that quite difficult. So I knew... I knew it was go back to law. Um, but, I thought, were, you on, were you on a special diet? Did you have to stay off alcohol and all that kind of stuff? Or? Uh, I've never been a massive drinker anyway. Okay. Like, yeah, definitely like gin and tonic and sunshine or, you know, a beer, lovely. Um, I actually found training in Texas. I'd come back from training um, and be like, oh, you know, a, a beer would be great right now. And I'd have one if I wanted one, not a big deal. 
but in actually when you do that kind of volume of training you don't want you don't want it you really don't yeah, so yeah. it's not. I'm, no, I never felt hard done by on that front. But, but for, um, the, for the food, could you could eat steaks and all that? You're in Texas. That's all they eat, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, as an athlete, follow a um, high fat, low carb diet anyway. Right. Um, so there's pretty much no sugar in my diet. Um, okay. And yeah, so it's the ketogenic diet, and I find that for endurance events, I seem to do better. It's basically retrain your body to run on fat as a as main source of fuel rather than glycogen and carbohydrate. Okay. Um, which a lot of people are moving to. Um, but I do kind of mix it up. I kind of cycle it. Sometimes I go back to carbs for a while just because right. I miss them. <laughs> and it, it is hard to stay on a ketogenic diet and stay in ketosis and get the benefits from it. Um, but, for example, leave it to Antarctica, I definitely moved to a ketogenic diet. And that's because um, per 100 grams... Uh, you get a lot more calories for 100 grams of fat than you do 100 grams of carbohydrate or yep. protein. Yeah. And on an expedition in Antarctica, weight is everything. Yeah, because um, I was when I was listening to Colin O'Brady, he was saying he had some food scientists analyze his body and come up with a kind of a nut bar thing, a sort of a nut yeah, bar thing, which the, the absolutely yes. <laughs> to his body that was perfect. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the, I did a lot of similar analysis with uh, the University of Coventry uh, here in England. Right. Um, and, yeah, I, I burn fat really well. Okay. Um, is what they uh, arrived at. And so um, it was fine for me to go on, like, a higher fat um, diet. Um, and it saves you weight. So, like, you know, what's, what's not to, to love? Exactly. Yeah. Now the physiology, um, individual physiology, is so important. I so I read these books um, about mountaineers, and one of my favourite authors was uh, Ed Vistas, who's done so much high altitude climbing. And way way late in his career, some sports scientists got hold of him and analysed him, and basically said, "You chose your parents well because genetically <laughs> you are really, really, really well suited for high altitude climbing." Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, which is it's something to do with the way his his blood converts thin oxygen and this kind of stuff. He climbs without oxygen; he doesn't need it, and that's yeah. pure physiology, some Estonian or Latvian genetics or something from ancestors. So I think, yeah, if you're if you you can be lucky if you're somebody who your physiology is uh, gives you an advantage, then yeah, why not use it? Yeah, they so they were they were studying kind of metabolic impact. Um, and do you run better on um, high fat or are you better on a mix and a balance? Um, and I guess the other part of the research they were doing is they don't have many women doing expeditions like this, which is uh, a massive right. bugbear of mine anyway. But they, so they really want, if there's any woman who are doing ex long-term expeditions, doesn't have to be polar, um, but it, you know, it, it helps. It could be an extreme heat one, I guess, as well. But they want to hear from women. Um, yeah. They're studying like this. the effects of endurance in extreme sports on women's physiology because they have they have pretty much no data. They have lots of data for men. Um, but what they found so far, um, and I was part of a major study that will run for the next kind of ten years. And the first expedition they studied um, was a, the Ice Maidens. So there's a group of women in the British Reserve. Um, British Army. He did. He did a crossing in Antarctica. Okay. As a, as a team, um, and they were uh, a great help to me. They did it the year before I did mine. 
Um, and yeah, the kind of early indications from the research they did, um, and I was number two, if you like, in that project. They studied my expedition as well. Is that women uh, have like our biological capacity for extreme endurance exercise is much higher than men's. I've heard that before. Uh, I think that's yeah. So we're mu yeah. we're much better at. But what is what has kind of come out of? I think they've published part of it already is that um, men use a, lose a lot more body mass. So the Ice Maidens and myself came back and we gained muscle. I gained 22% right. of muscle. Oh, right. And with men, that just doesn't happen. No. Um, they might come back with a little bit more, but it's, it's never been like those numbers. And all the Ice Maidens did, and so did I. So they find that really interesting. That is interesting. But I've, I have heard that before, that when you have these events like, you know, a complete collapse of society and it really is, um, you know, it's not enough food or anything like that and it really is serious hardship on the body on a wide scale, that women can kind of go into this almost sort of semi not quite hibernation, that suggests you're asleep, but preservation, kind of yeah. preservation mode and really, mm. and that, that makes sense from a biological perspective because the men, once they've, or once they've, um, uh, I'm trying to get the vocabulary here. Once, once they've, once they've, um, fertilized an egg, they're pretty much useless. I mean, you don't need them anymore. You can get rid of them. Whereas the women <laughs> have to survive to, you have to, um, for what's the word? Come on, Tim, I'm losing all my vocabulary. Evolutionary reasons have to continue to survive extreme hardship, which the men don't really have to. You know, yeah, they, uh, they, they, they can even get rid of them, and the, the women have to survive five, six years. The men, really, I don't know, two, three minutes. I guess. Uh, we're, we're working on it. Yeah. Entirely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I always wonder if some of it is so. The other kind of research they've looked at is women tend to come back from expeditions in much, not just greater shape in terms of we've gained muscle, that's our physiology and that happens, but um, actually take better care of ourselves. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Well, I think you have yeah, to as well. So I mean, men can, men can be. I think women have to, women's bodies are higher maintenance than men's. I mean, and you read yeah. stories of men living in trenches. Men can just do absolutely no maintenance at all. And nothing bad will really go wrong. They'll just be a bit stinky. Whereas I think women have to take a bit more care of themselves. Yeah. yeah it's. Um, um, I, I actually got pretty bad. I got a condition called polar thigh while I was out there, um, right. which only women tend to get. So it tends to be where you carry most of your fat. And so I think men get it on their midriff and then women will get it on their kind of thighs and bum. And it is, yeah. Um, and there's very little documented on the condition because uh, they don't have many people going to Antarctica who get it. Um, but it is from the wind, um, so it's high winds kind of hitting your legs. Um, and it basically is fat, it's the fat freezing. Right. Uh, actually, I think it's how they first sort of discovered that freezing fat as a form of lipo, it's called cool sculpting, um, could actually work. But um, yeah, I got that on my thighs. And I, I knew about it, and I knew how to avoid getting it, and I was adamant that I wasn't going to get it, because in the polar world, um, like the press love it when you get a bit of frostbite on your fingers or your nose, makes a great photo. Yeah. But everyone else in the polar community is like, what an idiot. <laughs> I 
like in this day and oh, age, yeah, yeah, with, yeah, with yeah, the clothing yeah, and yeah. Equi- the knowledge we have, like no one should be getting frostbite. Absolutely yeah. nobody. So I knew, I knew I wouldn't get frostbite. That's fine. Um, but pull thigh, they still really haven't figured out a perfect way uh, to not get it, and there doesn't seem to be rhyme or, much rhyme or reason as to who does and doesn't get it. So and it also um, seems it also seems as though it doesn't take much fat at all. I mean, my listeners don't know what you look um, like. I'll send them to your website afterwards. But I've met you, and just for our listeners' benefit. Jenny isn't some big fat waddling lard ass here, um, <laughs> it, you know. Um, so there's not a whole lot of fat on you. So it seems to be that just a yeah. tiny amount of fat, and you can get it. Well, one one kind of working theory that one of the doctors who works there has is, um, and this is really interesting, is so if you go on an expedition like this, you must gain some weight. Yeah. Because you can only carry about five thousand calories a day worth of food. And you like I was burning about ten thousand a day. So the rest so, that's the for your fat reserves, yeah. Yeah, and so I put on, I tried to put on up to twelve kilos, which is really difficult for me because I'd just been diagnosed as having an extremely overactive thyroid. Right. And so like the game is hard, and also you want to gain it. Oh, I wanted to gain it as muscle. Yeah. Um, but that proved impossible near near the end date to to going. I was still short of the goal, and so it was like. At that point, nutritionist was like, just eat whatever. So what, what, were you <laughs> doing? what were you doing? Just eating burgers all day? <laughs> eating um, Yeah, I mean, there's only so many, like, you know, chicken breast and pile of veg you can eat. Um, it's too fibrous, you get full. So it was great fun, if I'm honest. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, was, it, was, yeah. it was great fun for about two weeks, and then it got really boring. Yeah, this, um, hang on, this, I'm no doctor, but this might explain this bowel infection. How many kebabs <laughs> were you eating, and where were you buying them from? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, down in commentary yeah, buying kebabs yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually I ate things like a lot of scotch eggs that was quite fun oh, right. uh, and pork pies <laughs> like things that I wouldn't normally touch but yeah. Um, so yeah and so the working theory of this doctor in Antarctica is that women on the whole um, don't want to put their weight on over a period of say six months before they go on their expedition or their guided tour, or whatever it is, yeah. because they don't want to like it's this vanity. They don't. We don't want to look bigger for that much time no. before we go away. Whereas men don't seem to mind. They'll just bulk and up, so, won't they? They won't care. Yeah. Yeah, they'll put it on six months before, very slowly. And so what that means, maybe, is the fat that they have on their midriff. Um, first of all, it's less exposed to wind versus your legs, but yeah. uh, the fat's been there longer, so. Um, I think what he said was like blood vessels have a bit longer to become established. So the fat is a bit older on their midriff. It's been there for, say, six months before they go. Right. Um, so there's more blood going through it. And so it is less likely to just outright freeze. Whereas me, for example, most of my weight I put on in like the six weeks, eight weeks before I left. So it's new fat. So it's newer fat. So it really is just fat. Um, yeah. And it's much easier for it to just freeze. Um right. Uh, then it dies. So I, I don't know how to describe it. It looks like I mean that I've seen a photo of the most extreme case of polythi, um, and that was someone being a bit silly and not looking after themselves, um, right. and it's her. It's horrific. It looks like really bad burns on legs, um, but for a mild case of it, which is what I had, it looks like really bad chicken pox. Okay. Um, and it's very very itchy. Gets hot overnight. Um, but I had a kind of steroid cream with me that you use if you get it, and that takes you know it, it can clear up pretty quickly. And then the the but the fat does die, 
And so your body then has to um, process that fat. So your lymphatic system gets pretty blocked. Um, but it takes a while to die. So I, um, I get back end of January and still to the end of February, my like lymphatic nodes in my groin area were really swollen and painful because I guess my body's trying to get rid of all this fat. Um, and yeah, the skin on my thighs for a long time. I think the skin is just dying and coming off in like big kind of. Uh, yeah. Um, I, guess, I guess this is the stuff that's fascinating the doctors in Coventry. Oh, they love it. Absolutely love it. You must be like it. their little guinea pig. Have they put you in a yeah. maze yet and see if you can escape? <laughs> so I think I, I landed um, and um, I didn't really finish by the medivac, but once I was flown back to London, I was in hospital here just for a night for observation because I was stable at that point. Um, and then from there, went to Coventry, where I sat in their metabolic chamber for 24 hours to kind of complete the studies. Um, but yeah, I think I'll carry on working with them uh, on other things um, because they just have so few women available who can do this stuff for them, and it's really important. No, it's, um, it's interesting, actually. It's something I wanted to talk to you about because I do cover um, gender issues quite a lot on my uh, on my blog. Is something I talk to a lot, but more more in a sort of a, a, a corporate and social cultural uh, context. But I, I thought it's something I, I was really pleased to hear you're doing. Is you're kind of a, an ambassador and a spokesman and a sort of role model for young women and and uh, and girls. I understand. Yeah, so I am uh, an ambassador for a British charity called Women in Sport, and they do um, they do a lot in research, but also working with media to get more more female role models in front of not just uh, younger girls, but also um, female adults. Right. Um, and so that's a lot of the work I do as a as a polar ambassador for the British government is my focus is on getting in front of boys and girls and yeah, yeah. boys need boys need um female role models um yeah. as well yeah. um but actually what I find really interesting is they previously thought the age to get someone like me in front of school children was around 12 or 13 years of age right. and that that was sort of uh that was considered the age that they needed that influence and to see like oh there's a woman doing these things um I can do that too and a lot of what we get the kids to do is like draw a polar explorer, and it, they always draw a man. Yeah, yeah, well, they will do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's always fascinating. And like little girls would be like, "Oh, but you're a you're a girl and you're a polar explorer." They absolutely love it. But um, a lot of the work the women's sport have done shows that actually we got all that wrong, and they we need to be in front of um, children from the age of six and seven. Right. Um, that is the year between the age of six and seven where they're mindset shifts which is really upsetting but so they you know they'll speak to a bunch of six-year-olds and there's a um a study over a number of years in the uk and they'll say to the six-year-olds boys and girls um what could you do when you're older what, what would you want to do i'm an astronaut i'm going to be president i want to do this and the boys and girls have the same aspirations like you know just and children like, later, yeah. and it's seven years old you ask them the same thing the boys are the same i'm going to be an astronaut i'm going to see to the south pole and do this and the girls are like, well no i couldn't do that that's for a boy right uh, no i'm not going to do that and Cause it's because it, it's, it's interesting because with sport i mean it's um i mean you know there's no there's no reason why 
girls shouldn't become explorers. It's not like they're denying a place to a guy. It's not like, because you see, unfortunately, in the corporate world, it is a competition. Because if there's a woman CEO, then a guy isn't going to be CEO. So there is a very competitive nature to it. But exploring isn't like that, is it? There's no reason why 10 women can't go and try to break a record in the Antarctic. They're not denying any opportunity to guys or taking their place. So it's a very positive thing. It doesn't have any kind of, there's not really a downside yeah. to that. Um, well, so then, yeah, why why aren't there more women doing it? Um, and that just goes back to, it's always a grassroots thing. But you see them um, climbing. You do see that mount, women mountaineers have been around for years, um, like rock climbers and particularly uh, like high altitude mountaineers. The women who've climbed Everest and K2 and these have been doing it for, that's at least 20 years old now, probably even 30. Yeah, like, and just like there's always been, you know, well, I think I was like, I, I would have been well. this. I would have been the seventh woman to ski solo to the South Pole. But there's, there's women doing all of these things, of course, but it's the numbers. Yeah, it's um, very low. It's um, very low. And I think it, it yeah. is very important to give... This is one of my pet topics, which I bang out, bang on about on the blog occasionally, um, is uh, the lack of good role models for women, young girls, young girls, and even women, I suppose. I mean, okay, a lot of them have their mothers, which is very good. But when, when I was growing up, and when I looked at my peers and, you know, the, my school friends, most of our role models were, were sportsmen. You know, I mean, yeah. I grew up following the uh, Welsh rugby. So Scott Quinello, he was a huge hero of mine. Then I was watching rugby league and it was guys like, you know, Jason Robinson and Andy Farrell. And you see these, uh, you see these sportsmen who are looking very good. They're in good shape. They're, you know, for women, it's a lot harder and for, or for young girls um and when i i actually have fun sometimes questioning i ask um sort of middle-aged mothers who would you see as a good role model for your daughter and the answers well i mean it's up to them i mean i don't have a, a stake in it but the answers are pretty horrific the two names that always come up straight away beyonce and angelina jolie yeah, uh, I'm thinking this I tell you what if your daughter's turning out like Angelina Jolie covered in tattoos and divorced four times this cannot be a good role model and I noticed when which was the Olympics it might have been uh might have been in China when uh, Jessica Ennis suddenly burst onto the scene suddenly she became a very positive role model because she was you know she was in very good shape she was young she was very attractive you know, she was, um, she was, I think somebody like that was really a shot in the arm for young girls thinking, well, who do I look up to here? Other than my mother, who do I look up to? Is it uh, somebody prancing around half naked on a stage? Or, well, who is there? And I Yeah, think... they've got, so any, any role models, they've got to be culturally relevant to those individuals. Um, yes. So elite athletes like that, uh, sports stars, those role models do need to be recognised, but you've got to have like female coaches, PE teachers, researchers, academics, mentors who are women. Yes. Because it's ultimately, it's those women and not the athletes posing in their swimwear. Um, or even those, you know, winning Olympic medals that are the figures that girls and young women relate to the most and yeah, therefore have the, the greatest opportunity to communicate with. So the, uh, I don't know if you ever, it was a huge campaign in England and I loved it. It was called This Girl Can by Sport right. England and that's that was all the research uh, behind that was that it was about culturally relevant and accessible role models as being key 
Um, and so they they did like uh, street casting where they just used women off the street to take part. No one famous, nothing like that. And it was images of girls and women, all different shapes, sizes, faiths. Um, and that the result of that impacted physical activity levels of two and a half, over two and a half million women in the UK. And it's because they're seeing themselves up there. That's re- that's really much. interesting, actually, the psychology there, because the boys, yeah. they look up to the superstars. The boys now will have Ronaldo and Messi on their wall, just the same way as I had Scott Quinnell on the wall. You you don't, you really... It doesn't work for women. That's yeah. interesting. That's really interesting, that. I've, you yeah. know, I've never seen a proper article explaining that difference. And these, these differences are really important to get out there and understand, because... What 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 I see is a lot of kind of, this is what boys are doing. Therefore, we should include more girls doing this activity for boys. But if the mentality is different, that won't work. Absolutely, you, you have yeah. to take a totally different approach. And and you see it the same in the career thing, where the motivations driving men in their careers haven't been properly understood by HR departments. So they've applied the same incentives to women, who then either don't respond to them or they do and then realize later why the hell am i doing this i mean it's it's really two set two separate issues um and i think that the the things you're doing in getting in front of young kids and saying look i'm uh i'm someone living a relatively normal life because that's important as well you're not some freak of nature who you know can't relate to anybody and doesn't have a normal life is, uh, who's going off and doing this stuff. You've actually got a normal kind of, um, dare I say it, middle-class life. I mean, you've got a, uh, yeah. a fairly normal job. You've been to university. You've grown up under pretty normal conditions. Um, yeah. Yet you're doing this. And I think that's really important to, that's the important message you need to, you need to give to people, yeah, particularly at a young age. No, I agree, yeah. And it. <laughs> It is changing how we sort of, um, how, you know, when we're doing these school tours and how we engage and, um, yeah, it, like, I mean, even for example, this, a couple of days ago, um, the Telegraph launched and the first uh, broadsheet newspaper to do it, they will now have a monthly women's only sports pullout. Right. Um because the coverage before, I mean, is awful. You look through any any daily newspaper, get to the sport at the back, there's nothing about women's football, women's anything. The, the, um, prob- the problem women's team sports have, with the exceptions of like tennis and a couple of others, is they're bad, they're bad spectator sports. I've tried watching women's football and cricket. It's, it's, it's high school stuff. And without the money of people wanting to really come and watch it, the interest won't be there. Um, So I think, and I think they're tackling it the wrong way. They're trying to think, you know, well, why aren't more people watching the Women's World Cup? I think sport isn't just about, there's two aspects to sport. There's watching it, enjoying it, and then there's participating. And they should be really, really pushing the participatory part and not really worrying about whether anyone's watching all that or not. To be honest, there's only three or four sports in the world anyone's interested in watching. But the participation yeah, is true. far more important. It's really, um, and and I see the BBC is like you know they're they're talking about the pay of you know top level athletes and things. I I'd just rather see 
people just enjoying themselves. I mean, I used to play cricket. No one ever came to watch me play cricket. But the the participation and it's opening the doors to participation, I think, is is, is far better use of the meagre resources than kind of trying to promote elite level, say, like, yeah, like women's soccer or women's rugby. Yeah. Um, No, I think I agree. But, yeah, I'm always... um, if any woman ever gets in touch with me and is like, could you help me plan this expedition? Do you have any contacts in the sponsorship world? Like, I give up all the time in the world because yeah, I yeah, want more yeah. women to be doing this. And some people are a bit shocked. They're like, oh, but, you know, that kind of prevents you from maybe getting that opportunity. And I'm like, no, I disagree. There's there's so many. I think women are actually better placed now to get sponsorship for these kinds of things. Sure. Because, because every single company is looking to tick that box. Exactly. To be seen as diverse and having promoted, well, I think take advantage of that. Um, one one of the women in Total, she did. Uh, I think there was she was maybe with two or three other women. She um she rode across the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, she got some special boat together. I think there were there was a crew of four, and she was one of them. And they got some big boat with all the gear on the solar panels and all that. It was a weird looking boat. And then they rode across the Atlantic, and she came into Total, you know, and gave us a um gave us a big talk on it um so i think yeah there is a lot of that stuff around and there are and the, th- the thing is as well there are sports which women really do participate in two of which are one one is scuba diving you go to any scuba diving club or school full of women because it's something they can do really easily because there's no advantage of being physically strong once you're in the water um and it's it's not competitive hello Oh, yeah, no. Oh, you're still yeah. there? Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I thought you got bored and wandered off. People do that. <laughs> no, no. Um, and, uh, and the other one, the other one apparently is rock climbing. Because um, and, and, if, and I, I listened to a podcast the other day with one of the big American climbers. He said, if you go to a rock climbing gym in America, it's 50% women. Because they have this sort of good upper body, uh, this um, strength to weight ratio. And they're very flexible. Uh, yeah. So you can participate. So it's not like... You you can actually go along as as a mixed group, or or you can you can be in a couple. If you're a couple, you can't play rugby together or go boxing, but you can go scuba diving. You can go um, skiing's another one. I mean, some fantastic uh, women skiers. So yeah, I, I think just... I think it's really just a question of letting people know what is possible, and yeah, just just opening up more doors for. The sort of sports that women will immediately enjoy as soon as they start doing and thinking this, think, is, yeah, this is pretty I think good. Running probably falls um, cycling, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, cycling into those categories as well. Yeah. The um I've just uh well sorry, I haven't set it up yet. I'm in the process of setting up a new um charitable foundation uh with one of my sponsors and that's um to kind of give proper footing to something i've been doing for a few years now which is every year putting together um and like an annual women's running team and so the idea behind that is actually to take uh two women and they're not elite runners um just an interest in taking on you know quite a big challenge right and uh normally take them from the uk or somewhere in europe and yep. we then find two women um, from uh, another country. Um, so the first one was in Morocco, 
and the idea is to give two women in that country the opportunity to take part in like a a big name race. Okay. Um, and we race it as a team, so we'll train together, um, preferably out in their country, or they come to us. Um, and it's just mixing women from different cultures, nationalities together. Uh, you think language is a barrier, but it never seems to be. You always muddle through and find a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I've been doing that. So Rocco was the first one, and we did it in Iran, and then later this year we'll do it in Tanzania. Um, right. And we open it up so that you know it goes online and uh, women can apply to make the team. We only get a couple hundred applications, and then in the end we end up with a team of four. Um, and off we go. And you know we kind of we uh, we normally pledge to fundraise for um, women in sport or another charity or an ambassador for called Free to Run. Um, but there's no real obligation. It's just a nice thing to do as part of it. But that is a great way. It's a bit like the well, it's not can't say it's similar, but to the This Girl Can campaign I mentioned, where it's about someone reads that, and they're like, oh, that's just, you know, Joanne from Liverpool, and she never done running before, and now she's looking at doing the Marathon de Sable, and, and I'm a running coach, so I'll do all the training for us and support and stuff. Um, and I think people find it quite inspiring, and so they wonder, gosh, you know, I maybe don't want to do that, that's fine, but I could probably start going to my local park run every Saturday or sign up to a 10K eventually. Yeah, and I think it's, I think um, it's important to get the message across that uh, it, it's um, there aren't really that many obstacles in the way. And one of the things that I yeah. don't like about particularly their gender politics and corporations now, particularly in STEM, in engineering that I'm in, is that you, you hear half the time that, oh, there's all these obstacles for women going into engineering. It's very difficult. And I think a lot of these, it must be putting people off. And I graduated in 2000. I did four years at mechanical engineering in Manchester. And there were some fantastic female engineers on my course. And I think they would be horrified at the suggestion that, oh, there's barriers in the way, you know, and it's difficult for them because these, these women were... Back then, they didn't. They didn't want any special treatment. They were easily good enough to hold their own in an engineering course. They didn't. I mean, mm. it was just. I mean, the 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 best engineer by a mile, and the cleverest person I've ever met was an engineer who was in the year below me doing mechanical engineering, and she was smashing all the records and getting all the prizes and all this kind of thing, and. I doubt she ever considered, you know, oh, this is, I'm doing something out of the ordinary here. She was just an engineer who happened to be a yeah. woman. And I yeah. hear now it's like, oh, we need to do more to remove the obstacles. Well, stop telling women there's obstacles in the way. There's nothing stopping yeah. them <laughs> going and doing I, it. Yeah, I agree. Like, I remember graduating and being told, you know, if you're going to be a woman in law and you want to make it to the top, there's going to be all these obstacles, mostly because of men and, you know, be these issues. It's the boys, old boys club. And I just don't know if I find that to be true. Like, I've you know, definitely had occasions where you thought, mm. but on the whole, no. So, yeah, maybe you're right. We need to change the, the messaging um, around how, you know, you tell younger girls, or oh, you will encounter this, and just let them, <laughs> let them figure that out for themselves. Exactly. Um, but it's this, yeah. but I think there's unfortunately a, a, the, the other side to the, the gender equality industry is to perpetuate the idea that things are probably worse than they are because then that gets them more funding and this kind of thing. And, and I see a lot of that in the media where it's, um, I mean, I, when, I, when I went to university, I never heard from any of the women 
that there were barriers in their way. I speak to engineers from Kazakhstan and Iran and Russia and other patriarchal societies. They don't talk about it. They just say, look, you know, I applied, I went into university and I passed the course and hey, I'm an engineer. They, the, the idea that there's these huge barriers in the way seems to come from, I don't know, social science graduates from American universities. It's, uh, <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating because I'm sure there are a, at the margins, you'll have, and this will be true in sports as well, women thinking, I don't want to do that because of all these obstacles I'm going to face. Yeah, there must be. Yeah. And I think the message is better to say, well, there's going to be obstacles of all kinds. I mean, Everyone you, experiences you, 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 you want to ski to the South Pole, there's going to be a lot of obstacles, one of which you're being a woman. There's, here's another 155 obstacles you're going to have to overcome. So, I th and, and I think one of the ways as well, which um, it's important, is for mothers to demonstrate to their daughters. Because I think a lot of women really do look up to the mothers and see what the mothers can do. And... When you hear about kind of successful women, they quite often say it's my mother who inspired me. And I, I was talking to somebody uh, quite recently who was frustrated that him and his wife were really into mountain biking. They used to go mountain biking everywhere. And then they used to do everything together. They, they had kids. And now, for some reason, the mother still wants to kind of go mountain biking a bit. But, but she, she doesn't really want to get involved with like the bike, bike maintenance and planning the trip. She's just like, probably because she's busy, to be fair. I understand this. Yeah. But she's just like, well, you know, husband can sort the bikes out. I'll jump, jump on. Now, they have two daughters. And he's saying he wants his daughters to see his mother, their mother, fixing the bike, planning the route, getting into yeah. it. And going, you know what? I can do this. I can If I've got a flat tyre, I can fix this myself. Watch. And he, he, he's kind of... He wants her to sort of take the lead. Now, it's, and he's, he's finding it frustrating. And that's where it really needs to come from. You I know. totally agree. You need to see like, oh, it's not just dad that fixes all those things and deals with the car and whatever. My mom does it too. Exactly. So if you, get, yeah. so if you go, if you take your kids camping, who's putting up the tent? Yeah. You know, who's, who's doing this stuff? And I think it's small things like that, which are really, especially when young, like four or five. And probably the reason why I'm so sceptical of barriers in front of, uh, of women achieving certainly academic success. I grew up in a household with uh, two older brothers and an older sister. And my older sister was the cleverest in the family by a mile. So I grew up, and she, yeah, she was six years older than me. So I grew up always looking up to this very, very, very clever girl who's probably the smartest person I knew. So... That was in my head when I was three or four. So when I started encountering very clever women later, well, I didn't really mean anything. Yeah, okay, right, yeah, women are clever. I didn't yeah. feel threatened or feel, you know, that this was something I had to deal with differently. The idea that there could be an extremely clever woman who was better at stuff than me, oh, it's normal. <laughs> okay, big deal, you know, I don't, I don't care. And I, and I think that's important to see that kind of, um, now I wouldn't say she was necessarily a role model, but she was certainly gave me a, a, an understanding of what women are capable of. Um, and I think that's important, uh, uh, certainly at the young age. Like you say, 13, 14 is probably too late. It'll be yeah. five, six, seven. Much sooner. Yeah. yeah. So well, anyway. We've um we've passed the two hour mark and uh if um I I do want to 
a couple more things. I want yeah. to give everybody the address of your website, yeah. which is jennydavis.co.uk. That's Davis without out. Ah, start again. That's Davis without an e. Correct. So it's Jenny D A V I S dot co dot uk. Go to Jenny's website. Check it out. There's some photos there. There's some photos of her running through the desert, and some stuff about the Antarctica trip. It's worth reading. And do you want to mention any of your other sort of your um, charity stuff, your sponsors, anything like that? Um, so I, um, yeah, I work with um, DHL Logistics Company um, and they're an amazing sponsor um, and get my kit uh, wherever it needs to go and do things like send me my passport when I've lost it at a race, <laughs> <laughs> which they've done twice now. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, all my uh, training expeditions I use um, Atkins, uh, which is like a low sugar, uh, low carb um, protein bars, which I love. Um, and they're another great sponsor. Um, and yeah, that's it really. Uh, I'm, um, I've actually just had uh, surgery two weeks ago to remove uh, my thyroid, pesky thyroid that can't be brought under control. And so I think I've got another week off from training. Um, but then I'll start back um, preparing for a summer of racing. Um, and, and you're going to fit a wedding in amongst this somewhere, yeah? Do you know, so many people say to me, like, oh, my gosh, it must be so stressful planning this wedding, and it just isn't. <laughs> well, no, I suppose you're used to planning <laughs> expeditions, yeah. Um, and, like, actually, I'm getting more stressed worrying that I haven't done it properly or, you know, we haven't done it properly or something, we've forgotten something because everyone seems to be freaking out that we're not freaking out. Uh, so, so no, honestly, that that part is quite so, easy. So you're not a, you're not a professional racer anymore. You you've you've stopped being a professional racer. You're um, yeah, you're, I'm you're, right. You've just got some sponsors. Yeah. So this year, um, getting back from Antarctica, they've asked if I'd consider doing a couple of races um, throughout the year. Um, but I I want to stay um, at work. So. Um, you know, I had to train for Antarctica when I worked full time, so it is it is doable. Um, it's yeah, I I don't I don't know when people say, oh, you have to make a lot of sacrifices. Um, they don't they're not sacrifices uh, because it's what I want to do. <laughs> so. I, think, I think that's really important. If you're doing this motivational speaking in front of uh, particularly women in their twenties, early thirties. I think it's really important to say that, yeah, to say that, look, it's it's just a matter of organisation and priorities. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't feel, I mean, you know, I, I can lead up to Antarctica, um, yeah, did I miss getting to hang out with my friends all the time? Yeah, but they actually just started coming with me to training. Um, like, you know, I had to drag uh, tyres on a harness um, for like eight <laughs> hours a day <laughs> around the British countryside. And uh, yeah, like friends, you know, friends who aren't sporty can come to that because you're not going any faster than walking speed, and you have lovely yeah. chat. Go, so you, you, and yeah, it's it's a huge amount of time uh, to dedicate to it, but that's how badly I wanted it. So no, I don't I don't call it sacrifices. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll be training um, for a couple of races this summer um, and working full time. You got any any plans to go back to Antarctica? Um, I would go back in a heartbeat. 
Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot to think about. Like I would say, I'm still. Um, like yeah, Antarctica was like my biggest dream, and I still had. You know, I I call it a failure, which a lot of people have said I should stop doing. Yeah, you should. Um, but uh, it to me personally, it's quite black and white. And um, you know, everyone's like, oh, but it was brought to an end because of your ill health. Uh, but the truth is, I wasn't going to make it anyway. Um, all that would have happened uh, is I would have skied for another two weeks and then I would have got picked up. So I'd have travelled more distance, but I, that was it. I wouldn't have made it to the pole. Um, so, yeah, as a run-finished business, definitely. Um, can I commit to doing another major expedition like that? Uh, I don't know yet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, it's all emotional. I mean, I, you know, this is, what are we now, April? Um, and... You know, they're still trying to figure out if there is anything wrong with my stomach. Um, and so, yeah, I can, right now I can say I want to do it again, but it's emotionally tied up and having failed at it and, you know, being sad about it still. Because um, I didn't enjoy coming back at all with the idea of having to deal with everyone, uh, like press, um, see people at work, uh, see people who I train with, all that kind of thing. It's like it felt like a different group of people that I had to talk through what I failed at, uh, which I did not enjoy. <laughs> and of course, it's fine. Like no one else but me probably sees it as a failure. Yeah, but that's that's uh, true. I mean, in any any kind of sports person, or for anyone who's trying to do anything difficult, you know, dealing with the failures is is a uh, part of it. Is dealing with the success. Uh, yeah you know it's um yeah it's it's true for anything i guess it's uh and yeah i don't think anybody will be will be judging you i mean it's i just think you got very unlucky with the weather i mean that's but yeah that happens I, to a lot of people what makes it harder is my preparation and training for it and um, i now know it was just bang on yeah yeah and i have no doubt that i would have made it yeah, um, yeah. If the weather had been a bit more normal for Antarctica, but um, yeah, we'll see. I would love to do it again. Um, I don't know if I will. And part of that is there's so much to see and do. Like I could reel off twenty expeditions. I'd love to put into place. Yep. Uh, and so, do you really want to go back and do something that you've already kind of half done? Um, right now, yes. <laughs> uh, but I can appreciate that over time that might you know fade. Um, and I might just think, you know, that that is what it is, and I um I just leave it there, and I'll go and do, like, what's next? I'll do something else. Um, but right now, in this very moment, I really want, do want to go back, but we'll see. Yeah, because uh, unless you're, if you yeah, if you're trying to live a fairly normal life at the same time, there's only a limited number of these things you can do. Well, you know, things can change. You could give up that normal job. Normal's yeah. pretty. that's true yeah you're not you're not welded to to staying in it no well anyway i'll 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 be following your progress with interest and uh, i encourage the listeners to uh yeah check out jenny's website and um see what she's doing and if she's in your area giving a um motivational speech or down at a local school pop along and say hello so thanks very much for coming on. It's been really interesting. It's uh, no, I Thank think uh, I think think my listeners will enjoy it, and uh, yeah, hope to uh, maybe have you back on again in future when you've um, knocked off something else. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. All right. Thanks very much then. Thanks, Tim. Okay, take care. Bye bye.